Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would use it. That you would open our ears and our hearts. That we may receive what you have for us this morning. That you may use your word to convict us. And to draw us to you and to remind us of your love and your mercy and your faithfulness. That we may be encouraged and equipped to live in deeper faith and greater obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. We're, we're continuing in, in the book of Jonah. If you're here this morning, um, my name's Marty Cates. I'm the associate pastor our senior pastor, Harry Long, is away uh, this week and next week, um, and, and I've been preaching uh, through this series, uh, and this is our third week, so the, the previous two weeks as well. Um, and, and we've been looking at God's relentless pursuit of, of His people and His purposes. And, and we've seen each time and each week His different, uh, the, the different ways He's committed to His purposes and His people and how He is pursuing them and how He's pursuing us. And as we get to this week, we're going to see that once again. Uh, this week, we, we, we've had the joy of, of, of rain, and, and now slightly cooler temperatures have, have come upon us. Um, it's, it's a small foretaste of fall. Uh, and, and yesterday, if you are a, a college football fan, uh, the college football season kicked off, and um, I, I don't really, it didn't really matter to me. Neither team was that important to me. I know some of you are big fans of, of the University of Florida. Um, but but it, it reminds me of, of the fall because that's the time of year that not only does college football kick off, but it's a time of year that, that internationally the, the most played sport, soccer, kicks off. And uh, sports re- kind of remind me of the moment that, that we're kind of at here in Jonah. Because often, if you're a sports fan of any team, you get to a moment where all hope is lost. Right? It, 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 can't, it can't be overcome. The, the, the lead is insurmountable. And, and you begin to just say it's over. Uh, I happen to be a Virginia Tech fan, and, and that feeling comes often. 
And, uh, and, and there's no, like, reconciling, like, oh, they're going to come back. You just let yourself understand that it, it, it's over. Um, I also happen to be a, a, a Liverpool soccer fan. And they're a team that, that have a history of, of getting to these places that seem like they're insurmountable, that it's all over. And one of them, when I was just becoming a teenager, um, they were playing for what's called the Champions League final. They were playing to win this, this title, this, this championship of all of the great teams of Europe. And uh, they, they were in the final. They had made a run to the final, and, and it was kind of unexpected. They weren't that good, really. And they were playing a team who was far greater than them. And, and, and then in the first minute, the other team scored. And, and then before halftime, they scored two more times. And so they were down three to nothing going in, into halftime. And in soccer, that's like insurmountable because they only score like one or two goals a game. It's relatively boring most of the time. And um, you, you, you got to this point, and, and fans began to leave, and, and, and that's what happens, right? Like, when you begin to look at things and you think it's, it's, it's over, there's no hope of, you begin to, to kind of walk out on it. You begin to resign yourself. We could look at Jonah like that this morning, right? We, we know through the passage that Jonah's been saved, his life's been preserved, he's been swallowed by the great fish, he's been spit out. But his mission's over, right? I mean, he, he's obviously not usable any longer for the kingdom. We think like this. We think like this about our own selves. You know, we, we, we think uh, when, when we do something in our lives or we're stuck in some pattern of sin, they're no longer really useful for the work of God. I'm forgiven, but I'm not useful. And so this morning, as we, we look at this passage, I want us to see God's grace to the believer and, and, and how he shows grace to Jonah in this feeling of it being all over. And as we move through the passage, we'll see his grace towards the unbeliever, who we often look like and think it's already over for them as well. And so let's look at, at, at God's grace to the believer it's, it's right there in the beginning of Jonah chapter 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. What beautiful words. What heartwarming words. How many times in life do you wish for a second chance? How, how, how many times in, in, in your life do you beg for a second chance? You know, I, I know growing up, you know, my parents would put these stipulations on me like, well, if you do this, then we'll go get ice cream after whatever. Or if you do this, you know, when I was being really misbehaving, be, 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 behaving a lot, that they would, you know, kind of try to give me some carrot. And I, I, I would inevitably, I'd, I'd mess it up. And I would find myself begging for a second chance. And now my parents are wonderful and, and, and gracious people. And usually whatever the carrot was, we were going to do anyway. But I didn't know that, and I, never, I didn't learn that lesson until I was, like, way older. It was like voodoo or something they played in my, my mind. That, but we, we long for that second chance. And, and we know that, that we've got sin in our lives, and, and you know, we, we've seen how, like Jonah, we're rebellious spirits, and we're fleeing from God's presence and fleeing from God's call in our lives. And yet here, this disobedient, rebellious prophet is given a second chance. He's given a second chance. And, and, and we see this throughout Scripture, right? I mean, King David had to be stunned by his sin, that in the same event he could commit adultery and murder his friend. That, that, that Peter would deny Christ three times. And, and then after being restored, that he would actually 
uh, mess up so much with the gospel that he had to be called out by another apostle. He'd be stunned by that. We're probably not really that stunned by our sin. And we probably shouldn't be because if we know our hearts well enough, we know. We know the evil that rests in them. We, we, We know the places that we're not willing to let go of it. And yet, here's the second chance. We, we talked last week about Jonah's half-hearted repentance, right? And yet, here's a second chance for him. And so often, so often, we understand God's forgiveness. We understand God's forgiveness. I'm sure Peter, as he denied Christ three times, realized, you know, I, I know God's going to forgive me for that, but I've blown my chance to be the guy he's building the church through. Because right, he, he had already been told that. And he said, this is, you're the, the, Peter, the rock that I will build my church through. And so then he goes and denies Christ three times. He's got to be thinking, no longer building the church through me. I'm a failure. I'm a mess up. And yet what happens when Peter is restored? What happens when Peter is restored? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's Peter's second chance. His sin didn't disqualify him from God's calling on his life. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from God's calling on your life. And in fact, the call doesn't really change. The Hebrew here in chapter 3 mirrors the Hebrew in chapter 1. The only thing that's different is that this is the second time. He tells him to go to the same city. He doesn't say, Jonah, you, you messed up the first time, and so I, maybe, it was too, maybe that call was too hard for you. And so I'm going to call you somewhere else. It might be a little bit more your, your speed and, and a little bit easier for you. No, he, he calls him to the same people in the same place. He, he doesn't look at Peter and say, oh, I, I understand I was sending you to a really hard place and asking you to proclaim some really hard stuff. So we're going to water down the message a little bit. We're going to change the message. And so instead of you proclaiming woe upon them and proclaiming my wrath and, and judgment upon them, just, just think of some like slick marketing words to use to make them feel really good about the church and about me. And No, the language doesn't change. The call doesn't change. It's the same people. It's the same message. It's the same commission. Go to Nineveh and proclaim to the wor- them the word I'm going to give you. What are the things in your heart that you think disqualify you from that? And, and, and where is God calling you that you've turned your back on because you don't think you're worthy of that call any longer? We, we all have things that, that, that we know we're stubborn with in our sin. And yet, if you've come to Christ, you're still called. In, in fact, more often than not, those that on the outside look like the biggest mess-ups end up having the most beautiful testimonies of God's grace, not only in their own hearts, but through them, right? I mean, Paul was persecuting the church, chasing the church, killing the church, and yet we have his words make up most of our New Testament. It was true anywhere throughout history. When we were uh, in Florida, there was this great ministry that our, our church hosted called Celebrate Recovery. It's a, it's a ministry for addicts of, of all kinds of things, not just drugs, but like, you know, if, if you found yourself addicted to shopping too much, you could show up to Celebrate Recovery, and, and, and they had a program for you to be there for. 
And it was this ministry of, of people that, for the most part, in the world's eyes, had been cast off. Because usually people that are showing up are, are, are recovering drug addicts or alcoholics or, you know, fill in the blank. And it was actually in that ministry, and in the beauty of these people's testimony of God saving them from themselves and their sin and their addictions and propelling them forward in mission that we saw more and more people coming to know Christ through the most broken people in our church. The most humble of spirit because they understood the depths of their depravity and it didn't disqualify them, it propelled them because of the grace that they had been shown. That's the grace he shows the believer. It's the second chance. It's the call that even because of your disobedience, to still go and to proclaim that grace that you've experienced to the world around you. And so what does Jonah do? He goes. The call comes, and, and, and unlike last time where he rose but fled, this time he rose to go. He has experienced the salvation of the Lord. I mean, chapter 2 is all about that big fish, right? But not really about the big fish. It's about the great God who would save Jonah, who would work out salvation for Jonah. So Jonah's experienced that. And so now when the call of, of God comes upon his life, instead of fleeing from the presence of God, he's experienced God's grace and he goes. He answers the call. That is exactly how it is for us. When you really begin to wrestle with God's grace, when you really begin to wrestle with the faithfulness of God, it propels you out. It may not send you to Nineveh, but it's going to send you to engage with your neighbor. It might not be to proclaim woe to the Assyrians, but it's going to be to proclaim the good news of the gospel to your family and your friends and your community. Because it changes us. It changed Jonah, right? We, we saw as God saved him that it, it moved him from a, a guy who wasn't even fearing the Lord, even though he gave it lip service, to a God who was praying. Now, his faith wasn't perfect, but it propelled him. He goes. And so we underestimate God's grace because we begin to think that there are things within us that are too big for him to overcome. And those very things, we think, make us not useful. They disqualify us from the call and the service of God. Stop believing that lie. If you are united to Christ, if you're here this morning and you are a believer, there's nothing in your life that disqualifies you from the work of the kingdom. Nothing. Now, there, there are things that, that for men like me that have been called to, to pastor that disqualify me possibly from the pastorate. But they don't disqualify me from the call of the kingdom and the work and the mission of God. It's the same for you. We underestimate his grace towards us, but we also underestimate his grace towards the unbelievers. We, we, we don't think highly enough of the work that he can do. Just like we think that there are things in our lives that have, have made us unuseful, we think that there are things in other people's lives that make them unsavable. And yet here we see him work out salvation for the Ninevites, for the Assyrians. And we have to get over these things that, that we think disqualify, the, the, these things that we think put somebody too far gone to come back. 
and to be brought back. And, and, and we look at people that are in the deep end and, and, and swimming in, in, in really gross sin by the world's standards or by our standards and think, I can't save them. And you're right, you can't. But nothing is outside the work of God. Romans 6 tells us that, that when the Lord places his hand on you and he calls you to himself, that he moves you from the kingdom of sin and wickedness into the kingdom of mercy and grace. It's ruled over by this sovereign God. It's not just you who have been moved. It's any sinner that's called by God is moved into this new kingdom. And when we see the, the Ninevites and this salvation that's been working out in them, that they've been transferred. That's kind of where we're going with this is that God shows them His grace by bringing conversion to them. You, you begin to see their conversion worked out. First, you, you, you see how it happens. It's uh, beginning in verse uh, 3 as Jonah goes and he journeys into the city. And as he gets into the city, uh, he, he begins to call out. And yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It is a simple message. There's not a lot of fluff. There's not a lot of rabbit trails. I'm sure he said more than this. But, but this that's recorded is straight and to the point. And it's not fluff. It's, it's a turn and burn message, right? Either you turn. I mean, buried in there is the implication that if you repent, that he might relent. It's not promised. But if they don't, judgment's coming. His wrath is coming. The, the, the justice of God be poured out upon them and they would be overthrown or destroyed And that, that turn and burn message is not one we like to carry with us very often, is it? I don't know how many times I've walked into, into relationships where people are in deep sin and said, if you don't turn away from your sin, God's going to judge you and you're going to die. Go to hell. It, 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 it makes us clam up a little bit. We're, we're not comfortable with that, but that's the kind of message that, that Jonah's taking to Nineveh. It's a message of, of you need to turn from your evil ways. You need to turn from your wickedness. You need to turn from your sin. For if not, his wrath will be poured out upon you. And these are bad people. You know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, why Jonah doesn't want to go there. We're going to know next week one of the big reasons, the main reason he doesn't want to go there is he doesn't actually want them to experience God's grace and mercy. Well, why doesn't he want them to experience God's grace and mercy? Because they are terrible people. Like, I want you to think about the people in your life that you think, man, they are, they're way out there in their sin and their wickedness. And then hear these words written by the kings of Assyria, the kings of, of Nineveh. These are their own words. This is the reputation of this city that Jonah's going to. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpse. Some I spread out within the pile and some I erected on stakes upon the pile. Some I draped over the wall. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool. In strife and conflict I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive and I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses and ears and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many of them and I made a pile of the living and a pile of the heads. And I hung some of the heads on trees around the city. I don't want to go there. 
You know, what, what hope for Jonah is there to go and proclaim, woe to you, Nineveh, turn or you're going to be overthrown in 40 days. I mean, this is the reputation of, of his host city, of his mission field. I mean, he, he's got to be thinking much like we would probably think if we're told, Marty, we're going to parachute you into the middle of Taliban country. And we just want you to tell them that if they don't turn to the one true and living God, that, that they're going to they're gonna have judgment poured out upon them. Part of me would go, what, what hope is there that they're going to turn? Well, that becomes a question of our hearts because we underestimate God's grace. We begin to look at people and think, they can't turn. They're, 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 they're too far gone. They're unsavable. They're too hostile to the gospel. And yet what, what happens right here? Well, one, God grants them conversion. It's interesting, right? In, in, in verse 4, as Jonah's made it into the city a day's journey, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and then of us shall be overthrown. Verse 5 begins the conversion of the Ninevites. And look at who they believed in verse 5. And the Ninevites believed Jonah. No. And the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. Jonah cried out the, the message the Lord had given him, and the Ninevites' response is that they believe God. It's been working in their hearts. And, and, and we know that the, the belief of God in the New Testament means that we believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, and that salvation comes through him, and there is no salvation apart from him. And so when they say they're believing God, it means, you know, what what does it mean for us to believe in Christ? It means that we place our trust in him, our faith in him, that we believe what is said about him is true, that we believe that his life is true, and most importantly, we believe that what he did on the cross for us is true. And and, and Nineveh and and Jonah are before Christ comes. So what does their belief in God mean? It means that they're believing and placing their, their faith in this God who's sovereign who, who's, who's the God of gods, the King of kings. They're, they're placing their, their faith in this God that, that they know is judge over all as he proclaims upon them judgment. But they also hold out a hope that he's a merciful God unlike their idols that might show them mercy and relent, that might somehow relinquish his judgment and wrath upon them. And, and, and we know that he did that at the cross at Calvary. But so that's the first step of their conversion. They believe God. They believe God. Now look, we often stop there, right? I mean, we often think believing the right doctrine is enough. They believe God. And then they believe the right things about Him. It's like when I was eight and I walked down the aisle at Western Heights Baptist Church during a revival to place my faith in Jesus and I got myself baptized. Whew, it was done. It was a once in all, you know, I ain't got to worry about it anymore. I believed. But, but if you pick the coin up out of your pocket, if you've got one there, your change purse, and you looked at it, there's a heads and a tails, right? And, and, and without one of them, it's not legal tender. Well, the coin of Christianity is, is the heads of true faith and the tails of true repentance. 
And, and you can't have true faith without true repentance. And you can't have true repentance without true faith. And so they, they right now are, are exhibiting true faith. So what happens? Well, then in the second half of verse 5, we begin to see them have repentance. They, they, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And, and, and then the word reached the king... And he arose from his throne and he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation that everybody should fast, that, that food shouldn't touch their lips or drink water and not just them but their animals and their herds and their flocks and that they should put sackcloth not only on themselves but on their animals. You know, this language of sackcloth and, and ashes is the, it's the language of, of mourning and sorrow over their sin. That's the first part of repentance is being sorry and mourning your sin. They begin to, to do that. They begin to show the components, the, the, the first steps of, of true repentance. But it can't end there, right? I mean, we often are sorry for our sin because we get caught up in our sin. We get, the light gets exposed on it. You know, somebody flicks the light on and our hand's in the cookie jar and the light goes back off. We put our hand back in the cookie jar. I just wait for Meredith to go upstairs and I, I do it. That's, that's not true repentance. Being sorry because you got caught isn't truly repenting. Being sorry because of your sin towards a holy and righteous and just God is true repentance. Not just when you get caught, but when you don't get caught. Mourning over your sinful heart. Mourning over your heart that doesn't let go. That's stubborn. And crying out to him for deliverance. Because that's the next step, right? Is that, that what, what, what happens is he makes this decree and he says, and let us all call out mightily to God. To pray. So they believe the right stuff and they, they, they begin the, the steps of repentance. They're sorry and, and mourning over their sin and they cry out to God. True repentance draws us to God, not fleeing from God. Well, often when, when I've got sin in my life, when I am struggling with besetting sin that I don't seem to be able to shed myself of, I end up fleeing from God, trying to hide from Him and, and fleeing from community that would call me back to him in an effort to just wash over it and forget it because of the shame and the guilt. But when we really begin to understand the work of Christ at the cross and that, that, that our shame and our guilt was bared on him at the cross as well, then, then repentance and confession don't send us fleeing from God. They send us running to God. Because we know forgiveness. So genuine repentance. We are sorrow. We, we, we have sorrow and weeping and mourning. And it draws us back to Him. Because it's in Christ that we, that we, that we know the, the, the peace and the comfort and the acceptance and the love that we long for. But we underestimate it. We think the cross can't be big enough to cover it. And so we run from the cross. We try to cover it ourselves. We try to hide it or, or, or make amends for it. 
But true repentance is remembering we can't make amends. And we can't cover it, but it has been covered by the blood of Christ. And they do that. They, they move towards them. In true faith and in true repentance. And then what, what happens after that? It's this hope they hold on to. It's this hope they hold on to that, that God might show mercy. Right? Verse 9, it says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, Jonah didn't proclaim that if they did, it would happen. But they're holding out this hope that this God that they have placed their faith in is a merciful God who, because of their repentance and their, their humbled hearts, will relent and will show them mercy. Look, you, you can't really be honest about your sin with yourself or with God if you don't believe that there's the possibility of mercy and forgiveness. You can't be. You, you, you can't be forthright and honest. That's why it's really easy to confess these surface sins. That's why it's really easy to, to confess the surface sins, but it's really hard for us to dig into our hearts for the evil that rests there. And it's really hard for us to dig into our hearts for the sin that, that, that just clings to us and won't let go. Because we don't believe the gospel's big enough. We don't believe that there actually can be forgiveness for those found in Christ Jesus. We think we, we, we've either got to make amends for them and work harder for them or that there's no hope for them. And so if we bury them and forget about them, it's not a big deal. But no. Don't underestimate God's grace. I mean, he, he saved these, these Assyrians, these butchers of people. He saved Paul. He saved King David. He saved Peter in his denials. So if you're... If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you, you, you often probably find yourself in, in this self-defensive stance. That any time sin or your, your wrongdoing gets brought up to you, you launch into being defensive. Because you can't really deal with your own depravity. None of us can. We can't deal with our true, and, and the, the, our true depravity and the depth of it unless we know there is hope and mercy and forgiveness. It's too great. It's self-destructive otherwise. And yet as Christians, we can go and confess fully, knowing that there's forgiveness because we've been forgiven. Knowing there's forgiveness because we've been forgiven. And so we, we can lay it bare before God. We can live honestly in our struggles before one another. We, we, we can talk about our, our, our doubts we can talk about our besetting sin with one another. And we can call out to one another the good news of the gospel. That it's been covered. That you've been forgiven. And you've been made righteous through Christ Jesus, our Savior. And Jonah had to discover that. Jonah had to discover that. He had to discover that not only was God sending him to warn Nineveh. Not only was he he's sending him on this mission for the sake of the gospel, but that he was going to convert people that Jonah probably didn't want converted because of how evil they had been. 
but that God was big enough. And Jonah knew it. I mean, we'll find out next week he knew it. And he mercifully saves those who come, right? Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Right? This is kind of a pattern throughout the history of the Old Testament. The prophets proclaim woe, and people turn, and God relents and is merciful. He shows his mercy upon those who with contrite heart and humbleness come to him. And come to him. That's what the Ninevites have done, and it's, it's happening all over the world. Like, you know, one of the ways that, that we root ourselves in, in, in this foundation of how big and amazing and awesome God's grace is and, and, and how powerful the gospel is, is by reminding each other of the works of the gospel, not only in our own lives, not only in the lives of the life of our church, but in, in the lives of the mission and, and, and the kingdom of God around the world. In the 70s, when the revolution happened in Iran, there was only you know, estimates of maybe 500 to 1,000 Christians in Tehran. And now there's estimated to be over a million in a place that is hostile to the good news of the gospel. A place that's hostile to the word of God being preached or taught. A place that's hostile to you saying you're a Christian. God's at work. Showing his grace to the unbeliever. If he's reached your heart this morning, if you're here this morning and, and you, know, you know, God's reached my heart, Marty. I, I, I know this is true. Then, then there should be no thought in your mind of places where it's impossible for him to reach. Because we know the depth of our own hearts. We, we know the depth of our own sin. And, and, and we know the length we go to cover it and to whitewash it and to make it disappear. And yet he saved you. He worked out your conversion. And if he can work out a conversion for me, he can work out a conversion for anybody. There is no one far enough away that can't be reached by the hand of God. So h- how do we remind ourselves of this, Marty? How, how, you know, we, we read this this morning, we've, we see it this morning, but what are the ways that, that we go day in and day out reminding ourselves of the good news of God's grace, that, that how powerful it is, and, and, and that he's at work in, in us and through us well, yeah, I started the, this morning about the insurmountable odds that happen in sports. And I said I was a Liverpool fan. If you're familiar at all with, with them, they have this history of um, overcoming insurmountable odds. And uh, that, that, that game in 2005, that they went into halftime down 3 to nothing. They came out of halftime, and, and, and our wonder kid, our, our leader, our, our golden boy, Stevie G., Stephen Gerrard hit a goal early in the second half, and, and the crowd all of a sudden woke up. And there's this song that Liverpool sings. It's this song that, that um, was, was written by Jerry and the Pacemakers. It came out in the 60s, and it became the anthem of, of this football team, this soccer team. It's called You'll Never Walk Alone. And it's, they sing it, and it's not like one person gets up and sings at the beginning of a game. I mean, the whole stadium erupts. And, 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 and it, it gives you chills. If, if you're a fan, if you're not a fan, it probably annoys you, kind of like the chop does. <laughs> but, but somehow, it, it has the ability to lift this team, it seems. 
And so in that game in 2005, they, they, they came storming back, they tied the game, it went to extra time and to penalty kicks, and they won against insurmountable odds. And then last year, the same pursuit of, of, of another European championship, uh, before they got to the final, to get to the final, they had to play this team from Barcelona, Spain. And this little, little guy, if you don't know anything about soccer, you've probably heard his name. His name's Lionel Messi. And he embarrassed Liverpool. And, uh, and, and they, they beat us soundly. And then they returned home to play the second leg of the semifinal. And, and before the game even started, you could feel it in the crowd. They were singing this song. And as the game got going real quick, Liverpool scored. And then they got to the second half, and they just poured it on. The thing is, is that before that game started, a few of my friends who are big fans all had this feeling that we were going to do it. And one of them said, don't even, don't, don't message me throughout the game. Don't text me throughout the game. I want to hold on to the hope that we're going to do it. And this song being sung, and the memories of all the times that they had done it, helps you believe and hope that they could do it. We're gathered this morning in, in, in worship singing songs that should remind us of God's work in our hearts, in creation, in the hearts of others. We're, we're gathered this morning in worship to open His Word where we're reminded again and again of His work and His commitment to His people and his commitment to his purposes. And we live in community where, where we should be calling one another back to the, the cross. Reminding each other of, of God's grace working out in our own hearts and our own lives. I like to do this thing occasionally when, when Harry's gone, I have to lead our staff meetings where we, we do what I call God at work. Where do you see God at work in your own heart? Where do you, where do you see God at work in, in the life of your family? Where do you see God at work in, in the ministry that you're, uh, you've been placed in charge of? And where do you see God at work just in our church or around the world? Why do we do that? To remind ourselves to stop underestimating the gospel. To stop underestimating God's grace because he is at work. And there's nothing outside of his power and his mercy and his grace. Not your stubbornness, not your rebellion, not your sin, and not the sin of them over yonder. God's grace is big enough to cover yours, to cover theirs, and he shows it to us in the second chances. And he shows it to those in our lives by offering them salvation, by, by bringing their hearts and converting them that they too may know the wonders of the gospel and the joy and the peace of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that, that you remind us again and again throughout every page of Jesus. That you remind us of, of, of your work through him, of your faithfulness to your people and your commitments to your covenant. We thank you that you are a gracious and merciful and faithful God who continues to pursue us. 
Lord, we ask this morning that you would use your word to, to send us. Again, even in our rebellion, even in our rebellious spirits, that you would send us to proclaim your gospel. It has transformed our hearts so that it might transform others. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.